listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 103. In this episode, we're going to feature Sarah Jaffe in conversation with John Nichols. But first, the news. This week, the news broke that workers at Honeywell Aerospace in Green Island, New York, and South Bend, Indiana, had been locked out by the company. You might remember hearing about a previous lockout at Honeywell's uranium enrichment plant in Metropolis, Illinois, which lasted for 13 months and ended in 2011. The workers in New York and Indiana are represented by the United Auto Workers, and Tim Vogt, who is the president of UAW Local 1508 from Green Island, spoke to Belabored about the lockout. So uh, probably about a month ago or a month and a half ago, Honeywell had decided to, they were preparing for contract negotiations and they brought in uh, what they referred to as contingency workers, uh, which has never happened in our, it never happened in our facility before. Right. And uh, it got us very concerned because, you know, this was something new. Every year prior to this contract, we have always agreed to, we've, we've always actually met the deadline. Right. Uh, this, every, but every year that we came close, we agreed to uh, extend the contract if we needed it. Uh, this year was a different ball game. This year they brought in the uh, the contingent workers and they uh, they were job shadowing us, which yeah. made everybody very uncomfortable over the shop. And then when contract negotiations started, that was April 12th. We met for three weeks. The deadline was May 3rd at 6 p.m. We did not come to a tentative agreement at the table, so uh, they gave us what they referred to as their baffle, their last, best, and final offer. They gave us this offer. Now, this what, what the offer included was they were going to eliminate pensions. They were going to freeze everybody's deferred vested pension plan as of December 31st of 2016. Uh-huh. Um, no more, no more retiree health care. Anybody that retires, they pay 100% cost share. They also wanted to take away. They were going to all the active people were going to have a high deductible health care plan. We're talking $3,000 deductibles. They took away our personal time. Our cost of living allowances, our sub-benefits, our our supplemental unemployment benefits, Uh and uh, the wage increases that they gave us out of the five-years contract, they gave us uh, 2% in the second, third, and fourth year. That was it. And that certainly wasn't going to offset the cost of the health care. So they gave us a package that there is absolutely no way we could could accept. I mean, I I, I can't afford that. So so we we brought it back to the membership. They uh, voted it down. We reached out to the company and said, no problem, we can. We agree that we will go back to the table if you're ready. Right. And uh, they said that they would let us know. And then Monday morning, on the 9th, at 6 a.m., all the midnight shift folks, they were brought together and told that they were initiating a lockout. So I guess that's how they told us whether or not we were going back to the table or not. So, and now here we are. And so these contingency workers seem to have been them planning to lock you out all along. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Honeywell has a, a history of long, nasty lockouts, right? Um, yeah, there was a Metropolis plant with some steel workers that were they were locked out for eighteen months, I believe it was. But you know what? We're I, I don't care. We're ready. We're ready. One thing I can say about this company is they really know how to organize. Yeah. I have never in my life seen this much solidarity between our members. It's yeah. it's absolutely amazing what they've done for us. So, in that yeah. regard. Just for, for our listeners, what kind of work do you and the, the people who are locked out of the plant do? This facility here in Green Island, uh, we make uh, steel brakes for Boeing aircraft, and we do have some military as well uh, for the B-52 Strata Fortress. So brakes for aircraft are now being made by contingency workers. Correct. That sounds wonderful. 
It sounds a little scary to me. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even know how the, the FSA, I don't know how the FAA or, or any uh, Boeing or anybody else can actually feel that this is safe. I don't really quite understand it. I do a lot of flying, a little nerve wracking. And not to mention the safety of those workers, because a lot of them came into this factory mm-hmm, right. uh, to job shadow. Right. Three quarters of these people weren't even job shadowing. They were they were just walking around. And, and they're now they're coming out making statements that they're fully trained. Like, well, who the hell trained them? Because it wasn't us, yeah. you know? That was Tim Vogt, and we will keep you posted. Well, coal country is in the news a lot this week as the primary races in West Virginia got the media's attention, with Sanders and Hillary Clinton vying for the so-called white working-class vote. And meanwhile, everyone's also watching the coal industry collapse before our eyes. Former coal baron Don Blankenship is due to start a prison sentence for his role in the death of mine workers victimized by safety violations. And yet, while all coal workers are facing an economic crisis, the coal belt is hardly a political monolith. So as I reported for The Nation last week, it's worth taking a look at what environmental groups are saying during this election season, because they're seizing it as an opportunity to push policies at the federal level that might surprise you. They're actually seeking to engage communities like Appalachia in a broader climate justice agenda, which would enable coal mine workers to helm a so-called just transition to a greener climate future. Though you don't often hear their voices in the sound bites, many of those disgruntled mine workers are actually thinking systemically about ways to overhaul the economy. And they're not just clinging to their guns and their religion or retreating into right-wing reaction, as some would have you think. The Labor Community Coalition Labor Network for Sustainability, along with a group called Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, are rolling out plans to enhance renewables production, generate jobs in the coal belt based in environmental reclamation of lands ruined over the years by the massively destructive coal extraction process, and in general, shifting both energy production as well as energy consumption towards something that is more sustainable for coal country and for the rest of the world. Now, that might surprise you, but Labor Network argues that the demise of big coal could actually stimulate new industries that enable viable examples of what they call worker ownership models that prioritize sustainability, both environmentally and economically. So while many in the coal industry are alarmed by the bankruptcy of big coal giants like Peabody Energy, there are actually plans in Congress simultaneously that would free up investments for a dramatic overhaul of coal country's economy, which was much needed and bound to happen anyway. So one idea is for pro-worker climate legislation, such as that introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders, that would invest in reclamation projects as well as the development of water broadband and electricity grid infrastructure as part of a jobs program as well as part of a basic environmentally friendly development program. A parallel measure, the Miners Protection Act, would enhance minor retiree health benefits so that the workers who have suffered the grave health consequences and the economic devastation of the coal industry historically would have just reparations. Now in Kentucky, where Trump and Sanders will be racing to show their strength among angry blue-collar voters, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth have actually campaigned successfully to push a major local energy cooperative to halt plans for a new power plant and instead invest in long-term collaborative planning for a new energy system based in renewables like solar power. 
But it all comes down to political will, and the more talk is about preventing change rather than trying to harness these massive global transitions that will be happening whether we like it or not, the farther these coal communities will be left behind as climate change continues to unleash chaos, not just in the fossil fuels industry, not just in places like West Virginia and Kentucky, but across every economic sector relying on dirty fuels. Now, these are all baby steps, but they're worth highlighting in this rare moment when the world's attention trains on the poor white communities of the coal belt, because they're not just an election season trope. These are real communities, and some are pulling way ahead of Congress on energy policy, even ahead of the so-called liberal elite in many ways, in figuring out how to make progressive industrial policy work for their workers. While Washington insiders wring their hands over Donald Trump's bloviating about building a fantastic border wall, there's actually some very real policy that's working its way quietly through Congress that could dramatically change the way the country imports low-wage immigrant labor. Oddly, this is all being done through legal means, just the way Trump likes it. That doesn't mean it's fair or good for workers, though, on either side of the border. According to Politico, Republicans and Democrats whose home states rely on immigrant labor are lobbying top appropriators to include language in this year's funding bills to renew controversial provisions from last year's omnibus spending measure that effectively quadrupled the number of low-skilled worker visas. These are the temporary guest workers who come on H-2B visas, which enable temporary work stints in various industries, jobs that pay little, are non-union, and tend to, despite their nominally legal status, drive down both wages and work conditions for all workers, immigrant and non. Thanks to some clever accounting, Congress has manipulated the annual 66,000 visa cap, so the new magical number for visas is a whopping 264,000 temporary workers in the coming fiscal year. This huge expansion means many more workers to fuel massive precarious workforces like the one that operates Trump's famous luxury Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. The important thing to keep in mind about all this is that the system that's channeling workers into these work situations tend to be bad for labor in general. They undermine regulations and oversight and let crooked employers exploit many workers, native-born, immigrant, or guest worker, while circumventing labor laws and unions. The program could be reformed in a way that actually helps promote equal working conditions for guest workers and regular U.S.-based workers, but employers and industry groups are lobbying for as little regulation as possible, specifically so that they can keep on importing workers for short stints at depressed wage rates under exploitative conditions. In fact, that's their main incentive for having this system in the first place. The AFL-CIO has penned a letter warning against this dramatic expansion of the H-2B visa programs, and they say that misuse of the program, quote, harms them by officially depressing wages, transforming permanent work into temporary, driving down labor standards, and contributing to unemployment in these industries. Watchdog groups, including many groups that advocate for the rights of immigrants, have long condemned the program for enabling corrupt labor practices as well as labor fraud trafficking schemes. Unfortunately, too often, fears about guest worker programs in this country tend to breed xenophobia and restrictionist fears, which politicians like Trump ironically readily exploit to gain populist support. But gradually, worker centers and transnational labor activist coalitions are starting to build solidarity movements across borders that can help workers organize here and abroad. 
Ultimately, a more just immigration policy for everyone can only come through this kind of unity. And that's exactly what the dramatic expansion of the H-2B program now pending in Washington is militating against. Well, it's official. Your boss cannot make you pretend to be happy at work. This is from a ruling from the National Labor Relations Board from April 29th in a case brought by the Communications Workers of America over the employee handbook at T-Mobile. The employee handbook requires employees to, quote, maintain a positive work environment. We will just leave alone the sexual harassment allegations by T-Mobile call center workers that I covered a while back, which the workers questioned and the NLRB supported. Basically, the ruling says that because workers' right to organize and address their grievances is protected, the right of those workers to be grumpy, angry, or have an argument is also protected. If you can't ever express anger and frustration on the job, then it is hard to find out if any of your coworkers say, agree with you and want to organize, and of course, even harder to address any problems or complaints you have if you're not ever allowed to make those complaints in the first place. Of course, this ruling sort of opens up more possibilities than it than it answers. Um, what I want to know as a person who spent a long period of my life working in the service industry is whether this ruling will apply to jobs that require a lot of outward facing emotional labor on which employees are rated or, for instance, tipped. If your right to be not always positive on the job is protected, is your right to be surly on a customer service call, to be rude back to a customer who snaps at you in the checkout line, or to call out a patron who doesn't tip? This ruling has potentially very interesting implications for, you know, those of us who do that kind of work. At least for now, what is clear is that if your employer wants to have a positive workplace, the NLRB says they have to actually, you know, provide a positive working environment, which might, you know, require decent schedules and fair wages and good treatment from the management and all of those things that, you know, workers tend to organize and demand. John Nichols and Robert McChesney have been working together for some time, writing prescient critiques of the state of the media, the ability of billionaires to buy our elections, and much more. Their new book, People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, is one they've called their most important yet. Recently, I hosted an event in New York with John Nichols, who is also the author on his own of Uprising, How Wisconsin Renewed the Politics of Protest from Madison to Wall Street to discuss the book, the role of technology in the changing shape of work, and what we can do to make sure that our economic and political futures are equitable and just. This is an edited selection from that conversation. So I think we're going to start off by, John just told me that he could summarize this book in a minute. I don't think I'm going to hold him to one minute, but we're going to let you do a little rundown about what's in this book, and then I will ask you some very difficult questions about it. So our previous books that Bob and I wrote dealt with media and democracy and, and got a very respectful and pleasant reception in the United States. And they also uh, you know, were accepted by academia and blah, blah, blah. But weirdly enough, in Europe, people actually thought this might be relevant to policymaking. Unlike in America, where it's just like, oh, it's interesting to talk about media and democracy. Those are esoteric, fascinating topics. But in, in Europe, they actually thought, oh, this is important. So we started getting invited to go to these incredible international conferences. And I want to tell you, the mineral water is fabulous. And everybody wears these really great suits. And uh, there's a lot of security and swans. 
And so we're at these conferences and we're talking about the future. And they would let me say a few things about democracy or media or something. And, you know, I would then, of course, having said my piece, which, you know, was greeted politely, sit back and listen to everyone else. And we were with the CEOs of major companies. We were with, uh, you know, heads of think tanks, really the people who are at the heart of debates about the future of not just this planet, but the people who live on it, what they will do for a living, how they will experience what comes next. And what fascinated me was they were all talking about how many jobs they were going to eliminate. And they actually had these fabulous screens where they would talk about whole industries, and, and they would flash up and say, well, today, to build a car, you would need this many people. But we, as we move through the next stages of digital progress, we will be able to build that car with a handful of robots and one guy doing this. And then they were talking about, you know, it used to take 60 people to bring a ship into a, a port. It can now be done by one guy pressing a button. And they kept talking. It's interesting, it was always a guy. But the bottom line was we kept eliminating, eliminating, eliminating. And I thought to myself, this is a very robust conversation. And then I would go to these other conferences. And it was this robust conversation. It was this incredibly engaged, focused conversation about a future where there were fewer and fewer jobs and where the jobs that remained were, sounded like really not so great. Like you got to like take your private car and troll around the streets of big cities looking to see if anybody wanted to pay you to give them a ride. Or take, a, take an apartment in your, I know this is unimaginable that this could happen, but take an apartment, you know, and like maybe you have a room in your apartment, you can rent it out to people who are like traveling to the town. And it's like all these things of, you know, like where you would cobble together a life off the scraps of what, you know, once was a society. And, and... And I thought to myself, this is interesting to me because I cover politics in America and I watch what, how the media covers issues. I watch what politicians say. And I'm struck by the fact that nobody is talking about this. Like our political, this is like a really big deal, right? I mean, sort of like a jobless future or maybe not jobless, but really like not so great job future and a lot of other problems. And nobody's talking about it. And I thought, you know, this might be a good idea for a book. And then... I came back, Bob and I were working on another book, and I started talking to him about it, and he said, this is so weird. I was just in Norway doing a conference, and that's all anybody was talking about. And so, long story being short, we scrapped the book we were working on, and we decided to write a book about the danger of a jobless economy and a citizenless future. It's not that we fear technology. We love technology. We are marinated in it. We use it all the time. However, what we fear is that our technological future and our digital and automation changes that will take place, that are taking place, that they will be handed down to us from on high by the CEOs of multinational corporations, by the heads of think tanks, and by tech utopians who fantasize that somehow we're going to be able to work this all out by developing a new app. There isn't an app to get us out of this thing. This is the bottom line reality, and it is a pure fantasy to believe that in a capitalist society you would develop technologies that allow you to eliminate labor and then come up with some new way to create more jobs. That's not going to happen. It's illogical. And if we recognize that, then we get to the core of the book, the simplest core. 
And that is, why don't we say, cool, that's excellent. The technology was supposed to free us from drudgery. It was supposed to give us better, wholer, more, more wonderful lives. That's what Tesla promised. That's what Einstein promised. That's what Edison promised. Nobody who ever was inventing stuff said, oh, this is going to really make your future awful. No, they said it's going to make your life better. And what we suggest is that the change is coming. We're in the thick of it right now. It's already happening. And it is time for us to move up to that table, push some of these CEOs and think tank folks and utopians aside, put our chair right there. And let's just, let's just say, you know, we, our boots are a little muddy and our hands are maybe a little dirty. But let's, let's put them down on the table and say, you know what? I would like to be a part of this discussion. I would like to be a part of deciding what kind of future I have. And if there's a great deal of wealth and progress and benefit to come from technological progress, I want a piece of the action. And so that's what we say. People get ready. Come on. Just, there is a change coming. This train's coming through. You better get on board. But don't get on board as a passenger. Let's elbow our way up front and become the engineers. So one of the books that you did not write with Bob, which unfortunately I'm going to start with because unfortunately he's not here. Ditched him so we can talk yeah, about we, it. No. Um, is this book, this little book that you wrote a few years ago called The S Word. And, you know, I was reading this book and thinking about that one and thinking about a conversation I had with Shama Sawant not that long ago, who is, of course, uh, Seattle's Socialist City Council member. And she said, you know, I don't think people are scared of the S word anymore. I think people are scared of the C word now, of capitalism. And so reading this book, I've read a lot of your books. Why is it now that we can talk about capitalism this openly? That's a very, it's, it's an outstanding question, my friend. Um, and you have to say that. No, look, it was funny. This afternoon... I, I try every day to accept a, an interview on right-wing talk radio, which I, of course, get all my information from. And, um, and so today I was doing an interview on right-wing talk radio. And so this guy, the guy goes, you know, what is it about this Bernie Sanders phenomenon? Do these kids not know about socialism? And he's like, you know, the most evil thing in the world and stuff like that. And I said, do you know, I, I blame Sarah Palin because Sarah Palin took a moderate Democratic president, Barack Obama, who I happen to think is going to be remembered very, very well for a lot of the things he did, but he's certainly not a socialist, not a radical. And Sarah Palin called everything he did social. It's just like constantly. We're going to do weatherization. We're going to require you to get new windows. Socialism, right? And the fact of the matter is, I think actually America listened. Now, mind you, that was not a wise move. But... I think we all listen to Sarah Palin and Sean Hannity and Newt Gingrich and all these other people say that, you know, anything that was minimally good or humane or decent was socialist. And I think a lot of people said, oh, okay, I got it. You know, it's that the alternative to stuff that we think is really awful would be the S word. So that's separate from the economic stuff we're going to talk about. I think that the right wing in America did the best education lesson ever on behalf. I mean, Eugene Victor Debs, step aside, bro. You know, I mean, or Debs. They literally did this, and I think it, it, think it took. Um, now, separately from that is the reality of, of what's going on. The reality of what's going on is that people are seeing the, what is true about capitalism 
happen on a daily basis, and it is unsettling them in profound ways. The, I think the beginning of it is very easily traced to 2008 when they melted down the global economy, right? And our reaction to it was one of the best lessons ever as regards um, how an uncontrolled and irresponsible capitalism might respond, right? I mean, if you were going to take, what would the textbook example be? I don't know. If you melted down the global economy, if you literally created a scorching crisis, what would you do? Oh, how about give a whole bunch of money, money to the people that did it, right? Literally take billions, hundreds of billions of dollars and give it to the bankers, right? Because they'll fix it. And of course, they didn't. And Shocking. they haven't yet. And so we ended up, I think this was a profound lesson that even now our political media and, and even you know, economic elites don't begin to understand that the American people actually pay attention. They actually are, because it's sort of their lives. And, and they saw this happen, and then they saw massive unemployment, right? They saw President Obama do a small stimulus, which was actually to the good, but they recognized that they weren't the first priority. And I think that was a profound lesson. Remember, if you are a kid at a Bernie Sanders, a kid, if you're a young person at a Bernie Sanders rally today, let's say you're 20 years old, your conscious memory is of a time in which multinational banks got bailed out, when, which wealth was redistributed upward at a massive level, and which you saw thousands of factories close when we were told, not all because, of, you know, but we were told we, got, we, we saved the auto industry, and yet factories in your town closed, right? We saw all this happen, and you're sort of like, there has got to be an alternative to this. And I think that, that socialism is no longer feared because capitalism is seen as something jarringly bad, you know, really unsettling. And the weirdest thing is that I think the true questioners of capitalism are not at the Sanders rallies. They're at the Trump rallies. And these are not, it's not because they're on the left. They would clearly identify themselves on the right. But we, this is one thing that's important to understand about this year, and we write about this a lot in the book. Our media doesn't talk about the changes that are taking place. They are radical changes. Our candidates don't talk about it. By and large, certainly our mainstream candidates do a lousy job of talking about it. And then you have candidates who are seen initially as on the fringe. What, is tr what does Trump say? Make America great again. He's saying to a 58-year-old guy whose auto factory was closed, who retrained for a job in a warehouse, now that job is being replaced by a robot. Uh, and he's seeing these changes come in real time. And for that person, again, means to go backwards. Take me back to someplace safe. Take me back to a place where I can live where I was, at least for until I can retire, right, or make it through. And it's going to take me a lot longer to retire because they gave all my money to the banks after they crashed the economy. So that person there is questioning capitalism. They just don't know they're questioning it. And they are, get, they are being led astray in the classic model, right, by blame somebody else. The kid, at the, the kid or the young person at the Sanders rally is in much the same circumstance, except they grew up marinated in the technology, and I think they're a little better at recognizing what the future is going to look like. They're not as freaked out by today as they are by what comes next. But the fact is that if you go and you really travel, and I have, these folks, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about the failure of capitalism. It's just they don't use that term, but that's the subject that's in play. So from one failure to another. Uh, <laughs>
Because your book is about two big failures, right? Your book is about the failure of capitalism. Your book is also about the failure of democracy. And, you know, I used to joke back in the good old George W. Bush days that the way to actually understand what was being proposed was to substitute the word capitalism whenever George Bush said democracy. And I forget what the other one was. Um, but, you know, and so we've been told for a very long time, and I remember this from, you know, the old 1990s, that capitalism was the most democratic system ever. And not just in the Cold War era, but in literally in the 1990s when, you know, investing in the stock market was equal to democracy. Um, and so it seems like one of the cases that you're making in this book is actually not that capitalism and democracy don't work well together, but that literally at this point, the capitalism that we live under is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. Well, let me put it in a very similar way, but to say that Capitalism cannot be good without democracy, and neither can socialism, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is, it is the lack of democracy that, that hands our power away to somebody else without any kind of, any kind of return on it. And, and the crisis in America is that we tell ourselves we have a functional democracy. We, cer we certainly do not. We well, have who, the, who tells us, John? Who tells us? Oh, you know what? The fact of the matter is, we do. We, the people, actually still have immense faith in this thing. And it's, to a, it's a wonderful thing. I see it all the time. You know, not everybody, but a lot of people actually believe that somehow that's the way to fix stuff, right? And what they don't recognize is the extent to which we have structurally created barriers to it working. And so you end up with, yes, immense numbers of people kind of ex extracting themselves from the process. I'll give you the example. What is the measure of a successful democracy? Number one, its simplest measure is participation. Does everybody think it's worth being a part of it? Do you want to actually you know, jump in the game? And do you think something's going to come of this? Well, in America, we've actually had an election on democracy, right? On whether our democracy works to a level that people would say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And in presidential elections, about half of us, a little over, we do a little better in, in a good election season, but roughly half of us don't vote or are barred from voting, or are undermining their efforts to vote. But huge numbers of people don't vote. And where you get to the real stuff, the real meat of the matter, the people that make day-to-day -day decisions about your lives, down in state elections and local elections, you know, local elections around this country are in absolute crisis. The turnout levels are so bad, so small, that, that it's like barely notable. I mean, it's, it, it's, this is a big, big deal. And it's exactly what Ben Bagdikian predicted in 1997 in one of his intros to Media Monopoly. Ben Bagdikian said, if you start to cull out local journalism across this country, if you close newspapers, if you close down newsrooms, if you keep cutting down the flow of information and giving people a, a decent amount of information at the top level, but nothing about where they live, right, they will slowly begin to participate less and less and less. Do you know, I cover politics for a living. I go across this country. Do you know what people say to me all the time? They say, these are people who are involved in politics. You know, they say, our number one problem is no one anymore knows who their city council member is or who their school board member is or when the election is. And, and, and I say, well, yeah, but people were always imperfect. They said, no, 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 no. It used to be an election, even a lo every local election. It was sort of a festival. It was announced in advance. There was a theater that went with it. There was all sorts of reality. As we have changed our media system in this country, we have done all sorts of things that extract people from the process. And this gets to this guy's thing, which is a really important thing. In a good democracy, in a functional democracy, people say, oh, I got a problem. I need to solve this problem. Now, if you're very, very rich and you have a problem, in this society, you have a lot of ways to solve it. 
You can buy your way out of it. You can buy a politician. You can shape the policy debate. All sorts of opportunities. But if you've got nothing or almost nothing in this society, your ways of going up and changing, the, changing things, of addressing it, seem very, very limited. We ask ourselves why turnout is so low among certain groups in society. I would suggest to you an analysis that says one of the reasons their turnout is so low is because they genuinely don't believe that they can affect any change. And why is turnout so high among wealthy folks? Wealthy folks do tend to vote. Because um, this is a fun, it's like icing on the cake. You've bought the politicians, now I think I'll actually, yeah, it's sort of like close the deal, I'll vote for them too. But the, the fact of the matter is, we are, we are in crisis as a democracy, we should understand that. And the measure of the crisis this year is the fact that the most successful political message of this year is, I'm against them all. And I, I heard this wonderful thing, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are debating themselves, debating with one another, about who's more establishment, right? And, and, well, and Hillary Clinton say, well, Bernie Sanders, he's served as a mayor and he's been in Congress and stuff like that. So he's part of the establishment too. And it's, it's this notion that, that you have to find some way to say even the 74-year-old Democratic Socialist from Vermont is too much a part of the establishment in America. This is, that's, that's last stage politics, right? That's not, that's not the start of something new. That's the end of something old. That is, that is trying to tell people that um, the best response to the crisis is to believe that everything, everything's what they don't like. The best response to the crisis is to think about why people don't believe democracy works for them and why it's so relevant to this book is that we are coming toward a moment where our only way out is great big democracy. We talk way too much about big data, big business, big money. We talk all, way too little about big democracy. And I will promise you this. If we don't have big democracy in this country very soon, we will be the feudal serfs of corporate capital. Those of us who aren't already. So you kind of took the wind out of my sails talking about Ben Bagdikian and the, the media monopoly and this First, I actually am going to give a shout out to Andy Mendelson, who has uh, taught me in journalism school and had me reading Nichols and McChesney. But one of the things that you're arguing in this book to try to fix things is that we need to rebuild the infrastructure of democracy. And media, of course, is one of those things. Well, we're talking, you know, we're, we're, we're doing an interesting walk here where we are. We're telling you about a lot of the, the problems we have before we talk about the core problem, yeah. which is good. And then as we talk about how we get out of this, because it's all, this is, this, is a happy, this is a happy story. But... Um, the, this is the interesting thing about America. Thomas Jefferson was an incredibly imperfect president. And he's frankly an incredibly imperfect guy. Yes. Um, you know, all men are created equal, problematic even there, because, you know, not everybody's a guy. Um, problematic also because you had a little bit of a, you seem to have a blind spot as regards the slavery, slavery issue. So um, I'm not, not here to tell you Jefferson was the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I will tell you this, Jefferson thought a lot about how the American experiment might improve. I take my, my lessons about Jefferson from Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, we, we looked to Jefferson not for what he did always, but for what he told us we could do. And this is one of the most interesting things that Jefferson said. He said that one of the worst things you could do to the next generation is to lock it into a constitution from a previous generation. To say that, you know, we, you must live your life under the set of rules developed by people who treated illness by, by bleeding themselves and, you know, who accepted, who accepted human bondage. And 
you know, who literally, literally traveled, you know, by foot because they had no other means of transportation. With all due respect, some things have changed since then. And yet we are locked into a political system and a political structure that still responds to rapid 21st century change with all sorts of barriers to making any kind of response functional and quick and, and wise and inclusive. And so we end up with this situation. I, I've always believed the story of America is the story of expanding democracy. It's a wondrous story. I mean, you, tiny number. The people in this room, this, if you had a congressional election at the founding of this country, the people in this room would have been sufficient to, to choose. You'd be the, the wealthy planters who had gathered in a room in Williamsburg, Virginia, to choose, or some town in Virginia, down a little south of there, to choose between James Madison and James Monroe. And, of course, the women couldn't vote. The people of color couldn't vote. In some cases, religious minorities couldn't vote. Um, and certainly, poor people couldn't vote, right? So you had everybody on the outside looking in. And they say, the histories of that time, they say that when an election was held, you would hear a cheer go up from the people outside if somebody they liked got elected. And they actually were engaged enough to watch it. They were full-on spectators. Politics was a sport. And you were very, very engaged. And you actually had favorites, right? So it's not like these are stupid people. These are not like these are disengaged people. It's not like these are people that aren't a part of things. It's just they're not allowed right. to have any say. Well, we built beyond that, right? We opened things up. We brought more people in. But what I would argue is that in the last 50 years, we, you know, where we actually started to achieve something akin to full democracy in this country, then we started to elect or erect a whole new set of barriers. And it's not just voter ID laws or all the other things that we talk about so much, which are completely legitimate concerns. And my friend Ari Berman's wrote, written a brilliant book about you know, trying to renew the Voting Rights Act and, and all sorts of struggles there. It's not just money in politics. Uh, Bob and I have written books about money in politics and dollarocracy and, and these things. These are, these are all relevant. But we have fundamental structural flaws that make democracy not function in America. And we have, some, we have people in the room here tonight who have worked on some of those structural flaws and tried to address them. And what I would suggest to you is, this is huge stuff. We write a lot in the book about when this country was still young and when this country still believed in the 1940s and the 1960s, 1970s. And in those days, conversations about democratic infrastructure were everywhere. People were talking about democratic infrastructure all the time. Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his speeches about, you know, literally, you know, a, a second bill of rights. And he talked about literally how you would make democracy work. And do you know what he said? We got to have economic democracy along with political democracy because the great crisis of our times in his era was that decisions about the economy, decisions about our economic life had been pulled away from the people and thus they were being made on high by elites. Roosevelt said of those elites, I welcome their hatred. I'm ready to take them on. The people loved him for that. Now, it happened when, when Roosevelt outlined a second Bill of Rights, he didn't say that democracy was simply about you know, having elections. He said democracy was about having the, the resources, the capacity in your life, the, the work, the housing, the health care, all of these other things that freed you to participate fully and to really to be fully engaged in our political life. And he said there were, these were barriers, too. It's wonderful when you study where Roosevelt was at. And you know what the interesting thing is? We took him seriously. 
And so as we move forward in the 50s and the 60s, what you saw was expansion of democratic participation, but you also saw addressing huge issues. The poverty of the elderly with Medicare, the poverty of you know, so many folks with Medicaid, the war on poverty itself, influenced by Michael Harrington. Michael Harrington walking around the White House. A. Philip Randolph, one of the great socialists in American history, you know, sitting in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. People really talking about radical changes in our economic life to make real our, our politics, to make our politics consequential. It got so far. We got so close. And then power said, hold it, this thing's getting out of control. We write in the book about Lewis Powell's memo, the, fabulous, the famous memo where Lewis Powell talked, he said to wealthy people as a, as a corporate lawyer, said, look, you know, we've got to get involved in politics. We have to start you know, asserting our wealth. Or the next thing you know, people like Ralph Nader and Jesse Jackson and you know, all these radicals and all these activists, they're going to start guiding our country. And do you know what? one of the things that influenced Lewis Powell to, to be so concerned? He was from Virginia. He was very influenced by the ads on television that said smoking was dangerous for you, and then, or ultimately, and then the, the end of tobacco advertising. And he and other people said, look, if you can force companies to stop advertising for stuff just because it kills them, um, the next thing you know, they're going to be saying that we got a right to health care, we have a right to food, or we have, you know, that, that we're human beings. Everybody's a human being. We've got to fight against that. We've got to do something about that. And we have seen over the last 40 years a diminution of democracy in America. The problem is now we are at a point where our democracy is not sufficiently vibrant and, and functional to deal with the, change, the radical economic changes that are coming our way. So you bring me to the robots and the algorithms and the iPhones that we're both sitting here next to. Um, and so, yes, are, are you well, taking okay, selfies? Okay. okay. I was just going to make sure he's not, you know, we can... Leave you to take yourself. Uh, it's God. illustrating the reality of this. You know, that, <laughs> that, that is this true. is something we've actually come to understand Hi. in our lives. That, that, uh, just to give you yeah. an example of how much it's changed our lives. I was at an incredible conference in, in Europe, and I was interviewing the head of uh, Oxford Center on Artificial Intelligence. And okay. the debate was about whether we were going to have to genetically alter human beings in order to have them keep up with computers, right, and have them keep up with the automation. This is a very lively debate in, again, when, when, when the people who are powerful actually get together, they talk about stuff like this. So we're in this debate. They're having this conversation. And, the guy, and this guy, really smart guy, says, he says, no, you're actually not going to have to genetic. We're not going to have to do that. Because, you know, what, what we didn't realize this at the time, but instead of altering people internally, what we did was we just extended their arms. And we, we gave them this little device that they hold on to like their life depends on it. And we run all the data and everything through it, and they, they kind of live in it. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's going to work out that way. That's just another way to look at the alteration of the human being. We're all cyborgs now. Yeah. I'm just going to note, though, that the, the phone that you're waving around here is in a little leather thing that says book. Yeah, yeah. I'm fight, uh, fighting a good fight here. It, you know, it's, it's right. But so one of the things that people do when they talk about how we're all doomed because the robots are taking all of our jobs is they talk about it like this is inevitable and that there's nothing we can do about it and that it's not a political process. So, and one of the first things that you say in this book is, no, no, this is all about power. So, John, explain to everybody that the robots are not inevitably going to ruin our lives. Well, the robots are coming. That's the important thing to understand. And, and this is, you know, we should, I, I know you're super smart people and we're in New York City and, you know, it's not like where I hang out. And, and so I realize that you guys know a whole bunch. You've, 
even proving my Midwesternness because I refer to you as guys, the generic Midwestern term. Well, guys is the generic Midwestern term for humanity. Um, but I'm, uh, I live in the South, so we say y'all. Y'all. Well, but I know you're really bright, and you know about all this. this Gender stuff. neutral. But this is an important thing to understand. Everybody see Time Magazine last week? The cover was on the driverless car. And the big thing, the driverless car is coming. It's, got, it's arriving. And it was, good, it was a very good piece, well done and very detailed. And I've been dealing with the driverless car a lot recently. And I, what I can tell you is it's real. They are on the roads around us. There are experiments going on where people who are visually impaired feel their way around the car, open the door, get in, say where they want to go, and the car takes them there. And there are cases, at the, the Google folks did this incredible thing where they went to a senior center where the people were like over, everybody's over 90. And they got these wonderful ladies and they said, well, do you want to try a driverless car out? And they're like, sure. And so they put them in the front seat and they have a camera on them and they're driving around San Francisco, right? At like, you know, on the freeways at 60 miles an hour. And they are just like my mom and her friends. They're looking right at each other talking as the car just whizzes through the town. And, and they're like going, to, oh, look at this, you know? And, and here's the bottom line. It's great. It's really cool because they don't crash. The, the car itself is a computer. And so it takes in data. Uh, it literally, as it, if somebody swerves in front of you, that car takes that data in and updates itself so it knows what to do when cars swerve in front of you. It constantly improves. And do you know what the car, what the, the driver's car never does? Try to tweet while driving. Are you sure? You can't. And this is the interesting thing. The driverless car is going to come so fast and it is going to become such a part of our lives that they're now already in legislatures across the country changing the laws to, make, to clear the way for it. We, we're way down the track. This is fully real. And it's going to come even more quickly in commercial applications. That Uber isn't going to, you're not going to have all these people driving for Uber 10 years from now. Uber is already employing the top scientists on driverless cars. Their plan is to put driverless cars on the road, get you addicted to the app, and then they've got this whole infrastructure for the 21st century. It's very smart. It's very good. This is where we're headed. Every, you know, it's not a debatable point. There's only one minor problem. In states across this country, not everyone, but quite a few, the top job for men is driving. The top job for men in many states is driving. You drive a truck. You drive a tractor. You drive a forklift. You drive something someplace. And it's a, really, it's a really interesting job because you don't have to have a lot of education, but you have to be responsible. You have to show up on time. You have to have skills. You implement those skills. You deliver something for society. It's a big part of what people do. So what happens when the driverless vehicle is fully implemented? You say, well, there's an app for that. They'll do something else. I wish I had somebody today say, well, yeah, but all those drivers, they'll, be, they'll become retrained to, you know, to make those vehicles work. Well, that's a pretty inefficient new system if every single vehicle has its own mechanic, right? That's the, that's the answer you get from these people. No, you're going to displace gazillions of people. Well, millions. And the fact of the matter is, when we look at that, do I say get rid of the driverless car? No, not at all. But what I do say is, what I do say is, what are we going to do with those people? And I'm not the only one saying it. We open up our book with uh, Eric Schmidt from Google, speaking at Davos. And Eric Schmidt said, in his keynote at Davos two years ago, a little, roughly two years ago, said, 
you know, this is the big issue of the 21st century. This is the one, the next 20, 30 years, we're going to have to be talking about this stuff because what we're going to do, have to do with all of these people. You know, there's studies now that show that 45 to 50% of the jobs we have today won't exist. They are, we will automate our way out of them. And is everybody here familiar with the concept of Moore's Law? Moore's Law. Moore's Law is a basic concept. It just says we imagine technology, right? We imagine progress, but we can't really fill in all the blanks. We don't dot the I's across the T's. And so when we imagine it, we have this sort of like, you know, where's my jetpack kind of future, right? And then we fill in the blanks till we get to the jetpack. Well, in the 1960s, we had the best research talking thinking about automation. Because everybody in the 60s and early 70s, we read about this book, they could imagine the future. But it wasn't, the blanks were filled in. And so people said, oh, okay, that's not really going to happen, is it? Right? We're not going to have jetpacks, and we're not going to have driverless cars, and we're not going to, that's not going to, so we all kind of went to sleep. And we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we're going to live. And we started to imagine that changes that took place were taking place just kind of by chance and stuff like that. We didn't realize that across that period, the technological progress was coming. It was advancing. And we hit the Moore's Law pivot, you know, some people say a couple of years ago. And under Moore's Law, the concept is when you get beyond the imagining to the actual implementation, suddenly you're going like this, and then you go like this. The technology becomes usable in all sorts of forms. That's what power is talking about right now, the application of technology in all sorts of industries. And as that happens, we're going to have tremendous numbers of people displaced. And they're not going to be, if we don't have a plan for how to deal with that, and it's going to be a multi-tiered plan with a lot of responses, we're going to have a lot of pain, tremendous pain. And I'll just one last element on it, which is, I know that somebody always says, well, but you see, Henry Ford, that's always the answer. We, the answer is always Henry Ford, because see, Henry Ford, he was building his cars, and then he had to pay people and employ people to buy his cars, Right? That that was always, that, you know, you had to have an economy where people had jobs and had, you know, something functional. Well, I'm sorry, now we live in a quarterly economy, right? Most of our visionary thinkers, if they think a year ahead, they're getting a lot of credit, right? Our economy is set up not to worry about what happens to people a year from now or 10 years from now. It's immediate gain. And so that implementation of technological change keeps coming very rapidly. And here's the other thing that power figured out. It's a genius. It's actually an incredible thing. What they figured out is we're incredibly industrious and we love to work. We love to work too much. It's unhealthy. We kill ourselves by working too much. And they know that as you reduce the number of jobs, as you reduce the number of opportunities, and even as you reduce the amount of wages, they know from the last 40 years that our response will be to get up earlier, work harder, stay later. We will cobble together lives out of the remains of a economy where there really were jobs that were structured in a way that we understood them. We'll, we'll do the Uber driving, we'll do the Airbnb, we'll do the gigs, right? And we'll work ourselves really hard for a whole lot less for a long time. And you know what the weird thing is? You know why we'll work so hard? So we can buy the next phone. And so the people making these changes do not, they don't, they talk about it at conferences, but they don't fret about us. They're not gonna worry about us. We have a quote at the start of the book from Lord Byron back in the days of uh, the Luddites. Lord Byron, who's the one leading figure in Great Britain who stood up for the Luddites when they tried to wreck the machines because they did not want the technological change that was going on. It's a wrong response, but it was an honest, sincere response of, of craftspeople who had decent lives and decent jobs and did not want to move to slums and, and work 
in dark satanic mills. And what, what Blake said, and I'll paraphrase, was it took him a long time to realize that the hard work of the industrious poor was of no concern when weighed against the enrichment of a wealthy few. This is the way to understand technological progress. It's, there's not somebody at the top sitting around worrying about you. You have to bring yourself into the process if you want to have a future where those changes that take place will redound well to your life, will actually play out in a decent way in your life. So then what? <laughs> Come on, you can't just say all that. This no, is our... but, but right, but we have to, to talk about all of this as if it's not just doom, because I see a lot of people out in the audience going, well, now you're ruining my life. This is the, uh, my favorite now part. Now terrified. No, it's my favorite part. It's where, you know, we've taken, it's sort of, I, I came up in rock and roll, right? And so, as you know, you got to kind of like, you take the downbeat, you know, you kind of bring it down a little bit, and you bring it way, way down. Just like, just like Al Green talks about in, in uh, uh, Jesus is Waiting. And you know, he says, you're going to bring it way, way down. And then he start, you start to come on up. Well, you know what the come on up is? History. History always sees us through. It's our best friend. The only way to understand the future is to understand the past. This is not some philosophical construct. It's practical. And here's what we studied in the book. We wrote about all the technological changes. We talked about all, with all the CEOs. We weighed all the reports. It's all in there. And it's really like jarring and wild and fun to read. By the way, the book makes a fine holiday gift. But um, no, we wrote, about kids. we wrote about kids who are actually now sending away for a microchip, cutting their finger open, programming the chip, and then putting it in their finger, putting a bandage around so it's sealed up. Thousands of kids across this country so that they can have a leg up in dealing with computers, that they can start computers, open things, and do all sorts of stuff with a chip they have implanted in themselves. This is happening, right? So we write about all this stuff, and, and everything we looked at didn't give us a way out. So then we went back to the Luddites, right? And this is the thing about, the, has anybody ever gone on vacation to Britain? Yeah. Did you ever go to like a village? Yeah, like a little village with thatched roofs and a church and a churchyard and stuff like that. It was pretty nice. I will bet you some of you who went there, or maybe even folks who just saw it in a picture, right? You thought, hey, you know, if things work out for me, I might like to live in a village like this with a thatched roof and a churchyard and all this cool stuff. That's where the Luddites lived. They lived in the villages of the north of England. They did not live exemplary, perfect lives. It was, you know, nasty, brutish, and short. But, you know, there's a lot of fresh air. And they, they were around their kids, and they... Um, they actually, many of the Luddites were actually some of the best craftspeople of England in their time. They actually knew how to make clothing. They knew how to do all sorts of stuff. They had decent lives. But wealthy people figured out, powerful people figured out, that a lot more money could be made if we would take all these people who lived in all these sweet little villages and brought them into cities, let them live in lovely slums, and then put them to work in what Blake did refer to as the dark satanic mills. And... So the Luddites had this interesting response to being dragged out of their pretty little villages and dragged out of their relatively functional economic existence and being put in a dark satanic mill where they might have the opportunity to work with their children next to their child who was chained to a machine. And their response was to break the machines. And they, they took as their hero a guy named Captain Swing who famously could pick up a hammer and swing it loud enough to break an entire loom with one blow. That was a hero. 
And you know, the interesting thing about the Luddites, too, was they did not exactly respond to CEOs with the sort of, you know, let's give them a big bailout thing. Um, they were more in the I welcome their hatred school. They would literally drag the owners of businesses out, put them on a platform, and try them for crimes against humanity. The British government did not take this well. And so at certain points during the, the, in the early 1800s, when Britain was fighting against Napoleon, there were more British troops stationed in Lancashire than there were in major parts of Europe. Why? Because the British were freaked out by this, and it worked. They put down the Luddite rebellions, and the Industrial Revolution went forward. But the interesting thing about it is the great historian Dorothy Thompson, wife of E.P. Thompson, who we, I think we really bring to a new level in this book by saying that her research was as important or more important than her husband's. She researched the Luddites and what came of them. And you know what they did? They had been so disempowered, they were left on the fringes of all power. At night, on a full moon night, when it was light enough to, to go out and to make your way home and, not, and to find your way, they would gather on hilltops and, you know, in, in glens under the full moon and talk about their circumstance, talk about what had happened to them, what they had lost. They had to do this after having worked 12, 14, 16-hour days. They had to walk sometimes miles to do it. And yet they formed clubs across England, and they would just talk about their circumstance. Coffee houses became centers of discussion about these changes. Everyone was talking about it. Their first response was, can we figure out a way to get rid of the machines? You can't stop progress. You never can. Their second response, can we figure out a way to get rid of the people who own the machines? Well, the people who own the machines have armies. And you know, it's very interesting that machinery always quickly aligns with with military power. And so they, they were so disempowered. And it was a, it's a really dark and sad story until somebody came along and said, you know what the problem may be? It may be that we lack power. It may be that it isn't the technology. It isn't the, some individual or some political party. It's the fact that we're not a part of this. And so Dorothy Thompson traces the Luddite movement leading directly ultimately to the Chartist movement. The Chartist movement was a political reform movement that fought literally to the death in some circumstances. Violent struggle, not, not that the, the reformers were violent, but the, that they were literally mowed down. They're, these were brutal battles at times. They fought for a set of constitutional reforms or political reforms, England didn't have a classic constitution, that led to universal suffrage, that said elections had to be fair, you had to get rid of gerrymandered districts, all sorts of structural stuff that you would think of, well, that's just the boring stuff of elections. They, thought for, they fought for real parties and real representation. And they got beat once, they got beat again, they started to do reform acts and other things. They eventually got something akin to minimal democracy. And out of that began wild, radical changes. And you know what the interesting thing was? They, they started to fight to have the right to organize trade unions. They started to talk about something called an eight-hour day rather than an incredibly long day. The subject of child labor came up. Um, the rules and structures, how a, factory was, how a factory operated, they began to tame the radical changes of the Industrial Revolution via democracy. And it worked. They actually eventually even fought for the right to vote for women. Wow. I know. And you know what? You say, well, that's just the British and the Luddites. They must have been cooler than we thought. No. In the late 1890s in this country, as we moved from an agrarian society to an industrial, industrialized society, we had similar reactions. We had violent labor struggles. We had an incredibly intense 
push and pull about the mechanization of our society, about this movement from agrarian life to the slums of the cities. And the initial reactions were rough and, and, and very edgy, and then not so successful. But ultimately, we began to develop a progressive movement. That progressive movement said, you know, you need to make political reforms. We need an elected U.S. Senate. We need votes for women. We need structural changes that begin to allow us to get to that table. And you know what the interesting thing was? When Franklin Roosevelt traveled to uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1934 to thank the progressive movement for the changes that had come, he said, he said, you know, what you folks realized was that you need to have power. You need to be in the midst of this discourse if you are going to have any influence on your economic futures. This was something that Roosevelt taught. And Roosevelt gave speeches about machines and who owns the machines. We have lost massive amounts of history that tells us what we do in a circumstance like this. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, the future is going to be different than you expected. It's going to be more jarring, and we're looking at changes that really are amazing. John Maynard Keynes wrote about this back in the 1930s. He said, by, by 2030, we're going to be looking at massive loss of jobs, and we're going to have people really displaced. He said, you know what the, big thing, the biggest change we're going to have to do? It's going to take us quite a bit of time, decades. We're going to have to figure out how to work less and enjoy our lives more. And it won't come easy. It won't come fast. But it will come. And I think Keynes was right. I think, I think what he was proposing was true. But this is the bottom line reality. That's only going to come if we're at the table, if we're a part of it. Changes that are coming are revolutionary. But the only way that they're going to be good for all of us is if we have a revolutionary democracy. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was John Nichols in conversation with our own Sarah Jaffe, speaking about his new book, People Get Ready. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that! where we bring you our picks for the week of things that we wish we had written but did not. My pick for this episode is Inside the Rebellion by Herman Rosenfeld and Jacobin. It's actually more of a book review, but it incorporates a lot of elements of labor and political analysis that I quite enjoyed. So here goes. Now, people can't seem to make up their mind these days about whether China's economy is about to collapse and bring the rest of the world with it, or whether it's going to be the capitalist dynamo that will replace the U.S. as the next big global superpower. It might actually be both of these. But for what it's worth, it might be worth seeing China as not just a huge market and a manufacturing powerhouse with an unpredictable future, but as the world's biggest proletariat with an unpredictable future. Rosenfeld writes presciently in Jacobin about China's labor struggles in a global context. The piece is an analytical review of an academic work on Chinese auto workers, Lu Zhang's Inside China's Automobile Factories, The Politics and Labor of Worker Resistance. It reads well on its own as a careful depiction of the lessons that labor activists in the West can draw from patterns of labor struggle in the People's Republic. The parallels between U.S. and Chinese auto workers is notable. Historically, auto workers have held a special place in the U.S. labor movement as both the emblematic assembly line laborer who held the promise of a strong union movement under a capitalist superstructure, 
as well as the icon of labor's struggle in an industry that was openly hostile to unionization. In China, though their auto industry is far smaller, auto workers today occupy a similar pivot point in the capitalist transition. Rosenfeld writes, quote, auto workers recognize their position in the production process affords them a special capacity to engage in effective workplace actions, to shut down production, to achieve workplace gains, unquote. But on the other hand, this position of leverage is becoming more and more precarious as China's industrial policy shifts towards promoting consumerism over heavy industry, and cars are both coveted commodities now, as well as products of increasingly volatile and de-skilled production chains. As Rosenfeld puts it, profitability demands constant cost reduction, often through exploitative practices like lean or just-in-time production and the segmentation of the workforce by wage rate, work status, and so forth. Sound familiar? Due to the size of China's state and its role in the capitalist transformation, of course, in contrast to the U.S., production is sharply related to its political legitimacy. Now, workers have long been able to leverage this through labor unrest, but that is changing. Rosenfeld goes on, the Chinese Communist Party secures legitimacy primarily through its vows to grow the economy and maintain social stability. Indeed, economic growth is a means to retain the party's monopoly on political power. Chinese workers aren't inanimate objects, though, in the legitimation process, he writes. In an environment without autonomous collective organization and collective bargaining, workers use the CCP's need to justify its rule to make gains on the shop floor. So as the labor crisis mounts, we see interesting parallels between the current embattled U.S. workforce and the incipient crisis playing out in China's auto belt. One notable highlight, of course, is the role of two-tier workforces in both countries. The two-tier system in the UAW workforce has been seen as sharply divisive for workers, and in China, where all workers are part of one big government-run union, it's actually the lower-tiered workers that are leading a new independent labor movement through their resistance. As Rosenfeld observes, the secondary workforce has evolved over time into a younger, more highly educated and urbanized group, and they're increasingly fighting back against extreme violations of their rights at times with the backing of a core workforce. Strikes and protests in the industry have helped pressure the state to pass important labor legislation, establish new rules for written labor contracts, and impose regulations on temporary labor agencies. But here's the upshot. In China, this is militancy without really a movement. It's an insurgency without really a direction. Citing the seminal work of Piven and Cloward and its influence on Zhang, Herman writes, quote, without a larger oppositional framework, buttressed by conscious class organization, the ability to do more than limit the damage and indirectly shape contemporary capitalism is impossible. As in the US, China is suffering from a lack of class consciousness. So what can workers here learn about the brazen boldness of China's auto worker uprisings in the absence of a concrete class analysis? And in turn, what can we discern about how to harness this unrest towards building a real ideological response to those deeper systemic challenges that Rosenfeld cites in China, but that are also playing out in carbon copy over here? Frankly, neither China's workers nor auto workers in the US know the answer and the two labor movements could diverge in sharply different directions in coming years, but I think it's more likely that globalization will bring a convergence of these two workforces, particularly as auto markets converge across the globe. In the US, we have the benefit of a relatively open society, despite a corrupt political system, 
and in China, which also suffers from corrupt politics but has the addition of an authoritarian state, China's workers have managed to generate change under a non-democratic system. So the U.S., which has a viable independent labor movement within a somewhat functional democracy, what do we have? It's easy to draw comparisons, positive and negative, and harder to translate those into a program of action. The Verizon workers, as of this recording, are still on strike, still walking the picket lines, still following around the scabs who are doing their jobs badly. And the day this podcast comes out will be actually exactly a month since they went out. Last week, 250 Verizon workers and CWA members attended Verizon's shareholder meeting. 15 of them were arrested blocking traffic outside the meeting, including one of our uh, belabored guests from the week that the strike went out. Um, Inside, worker-promoted shareholder resolutions were introduced. This week, there were reports that New York City police were driving scabs across picket lines, and one striker was actually hit by a car driven by NYPD and taken to the hospital. While we will keep you updated on the strike and Verizon's refusal to deal with the workers while breaking in record profits, I wanted to call attention to an excellent piece over at Slate by Virginia Soul Smith that explores one of the practices the workers are striking over, the use of low-paid independent contractors and Belabored listeners know that independent contractors always comes with big scare quotes, um, instead of the full-time union technicians to install and work on cable services. Verizon is, of course, not the only company to do this. These trends tend to be industry-wide. Sol Smith talked to contractors for Comcast, who one of whom reported that when he began working as an independent contractor, he actually felt independent, had control over his hours and his schedule. But now the company is using an app that sound familiar, exerts far more control over the work that he does, tracks him via GPS, and allots every bit of time in his day for him while still paying him like an independent contractor. You have heard us talk a lot about misclassified workers on this podcast in the past, specifically in the port trucking industry, and the stories told by these cable contractors really do mirror those of the port truckers. One driver reports paying the company to rent a truck, paying his own gas, and being paid by the job rather than by the hour, so even though he says he works 13-hour days, often six days a week, he winds up taking home less than $300 a week. To use the company's app required, you need a smartphone, which of course you are also paying for yourself. And a point that the union workers at Verizon have also made, the independent contractors are supposedly skilled outside workers brought in to do a specific job, which is what justifies the use of quote, independent contractors in the first place. But in fact, they're often given less training and less support than the unionized workforce. Soul Smith writes, quote, in other misclassification lawsuits, cable companies have argued with mixed success that they are merely content providers that bring in highly trained installation professionals, much as you might hire an electrician or a plumber. But that would be news to Franklin, who had never fished cable through a wall or hooked up a DS cell connection before last year. He says, I went in, filled out my application, took my drug test, did my background check. That was it. He received two weeks of training, then spent two more weeks in the field shadowing an experienced tech. After that, he was on his own. Goodgall reports the same experience, noting how ill-prepared he felt when he started. You don't make any money for the first three months because you're still learning. Every house is a totally different setup and you don't know any of the shortcuts, end quote. 
It is easy, of course, for the companies to try to pit these workers against the union, calling unionized workers greedy for making demands on very, very profitable companies while the contractors do work for much less. But the workers in the union argue that rather than using cheap and often less trained contractors, the company should bring them on full time and give them benefits and proper training for everyone's safety and, you know, benefit. As the strike goes on, we will of course keep you up to date on the latest, but a look at the kind of job the big cable companies want workers to have is a potent reminder of what the strike is all about. That is all we have for this week. As always, thank you for listening, and a special thank you to those of you who have signed up as monthly supporters of this podcast. We appreciate you, and you should send us pictures of your snazzy tote bag when it arrives. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored, and you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a Verizon striker or a misclassified contractor, if you are on the streets in Greece or the lockout picket lines at Honeywell, if you want to talk about technology and jobs or complain about your boss. You can find links to everything we've discussed on this podcast and link to sign up to be one of those supporters and get your very own tote bag at descentmagazine.org. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.